Joel, and what I did was I videoed them and, and would see all these bad patterns when they ran. I did four sets of exercises and watched how, how it changed them for the worst. And then we started doing performance cycling is what I call it. Basically these circuits that I'm speaking of. And after about two to three weeks, Joel, those compensation patterns went away. Okay. And they all started running much more smoothly, right? It's crazy. And I think running is, is one of the greatest assessments of, of any athlete. That was Cal Dietz, and you're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by our longtime sponsor, Simply Faster. There are a lot of sports technology companies out there, but Simply Faster is the only website you can go to that features an online store that covers the bandwidth of training technology, from force plates to timing systems to muscle simulators and more. Some products of Simply Faster that I use and love include things like the Freelap Timing System in KBox or coaches' favorites such as GymAware. Recently, Simply Faster has added two units that, as a coach, you should definitely take a look at. The first is the Muscle Lab Contact Grid which is an extremely affordable and portable step-by-step, literally, system to collect data on jumps, bounds, sprints, agility, hurdle hops, and really as much as your creative mind can imagine. In what used to take a whole runway worth of data collecting strips, the contact grid does it all with only two small strips that together cover up to 40 meters of sprinting. Ground contact time, step rates, rhythms, and beyond are at your fingertips with this device. Another new unit, the VO2 Master, is an ultra-portable gas exchange analyzer. Don't guess on energy system development when you can get direct insight into VO2 capabilities in relation to specific sports skills, rather than being hooked up to tubes on a treadmill or worse yet, a cycle ergometer to get a VO2 max. Think of the VO2 Master as your own gas exchange lab without the tubes and wires. Deepen your analysis in the specific conditioning preparation of your athletes with the VO2 Master today. These products and incredible customer service make Simply Faster your go-to for your sports technology needs. I'm happy to have partnered with them in sponsoring this podcast. Their support has been tremendous, so check them out today at simplyfaster.com. That's simply with an I, faster.com. Hey everybody, welcome to another show. French contrast training, which is basically a form of complex training with two separate waves alternating weights and plyometrics has been one of the biggest uh, shifts or, or discoveries, whatever you want to call it, in my own coaching career, and then even in my own personal training. Cal Dietz and Chris Corfis put out a book uh, maybe a little over five years ago. It was the Triphasic Football Manual, and it was this French contrast combined with the triphasic training methods of alternating the repetition type that led to huge increases in vertical jump in their athletes, And I found great benefits of using that method as well. So complex training has always been a part of my regime. French contrast has advanced it. And today I'm going to talk with Coach Caldeets about some modifications that he has been making to his contrast and complex methods that revolve very specifically around improving sprint technique. I think I just recently mentioned about the improvements and gains from triphasic from the French contrast. And a lot of that was immediately seen in vertical jump. Like that's the big and maybe easier thing in some respects to improve in the weight room because it's all a lot of weight room methods are they're vertical, they're bilateral, sagittal, they kind of look like vertical jumping. Whereas things we do in the weight room tend to not look as much like sprinting. Sprinting is the fastest and most coordinated and most complex thing essentially that athletes can do. So it's a little bit harder to find transfer. But Cal Dietz is always searching for means, methods, and ways to make things transfer to speed better 
And if you've been in the coaching game for a while, I think we know that speed truly raises all ships. Many of you likely know who Cal is, but just a quick background, Cal has been on this show four times. Cal has worked in Olympic sports at the University of Minnesota since 2000, has had tremendous success there. He's also consulted with Olympic and world champions in various sports and professional athletes as well. Cal is the co-author of the top-selling book, Triphasic Training, as well as many other training manuals. And his recent show on single leg versus bilateral training and progressing single leg into double leg training has been one of our most popular episodes ever. So on this show, Cal's going to talk extensively about his own complex training methods. He's going to chat about his 20-yard dash test, getting 5, 10, and 20-yard splits, and using this to make an athlete's training a little bit more specific to their particular needs. Basically, this is an episode that really, truly revolves around sprinting and modifying the weight room, block periodization, and your entire system to make an athlete faster. This was a great episode. It's always awesome to have Cal on the show, and it was fun talking to him again. Let's get on to it. Episode 244 with Cal Dietz. Cal, awesome to have you back on the show, man. First question for you. This may be not necessarily about the training details, but one of the quotes you have said, I think at a seminar, I've heard this in person, but like you have to break a lot of eggs to make a cake. And I know us coaches have all been there with breaking eggs, trying stuff that didn't work quite like we thought it would. For me, maybe one of them was doing one by 20 with like super sprinter type people, you know, type one sprinters. You know, that was not perhaps the best thing that I've done. But I'd like to ask you, you know, in the process of either triphasic or and, you know, you, you do so much in your training program. So what are some of those, I guess, proverbial eggs that you've broken? Yeah. And, and like, I have to say people didn't break. Right. But necessarily, cause I mean, theoretically athletes have so much ability to handle stress, but the soreness in the, in the, you know, like, for example, I remember second year, no first year as a strength coach here at Minnesota, I had, I had the best swim team in the big 10. And I remember I, I did a, high volume day on a certain deal and it was it was a lot of volume with the swimmers and, and you've trained for swimmers joel and then <laughs> coach really didn't care at that time if we swam fast but it, they were really bad like joel they were really bad right <laughs> so he goes like hell i don't know what you did but so so this is the beauty he, he was like they were so bad i'm like oh, okay that was my fault i'll back off he's like all right He's like, I'm like, sorry, what, you know, do you want me to let him know? He's like, no, I'm just going to tell him they're soft as shit. <laughs> and we're going to move ahead to, to toughen up. This will be yeah. a good lesson. And I mean, we won the meet. We killed whoever team was here, right? But just like, oh, you know, and then, and, and a lot of it had to do with when I place stuff in. I, I say, I remember at the beginning, I saved my one high, like, I shouldn't have done this is when I was young, but like my most important lift day, I was going to do it at the end of the week because they had some stuff. And then again, I realized that. And, and it went so bad. And I realized, God, they went to beer wing night on Thursday night. Like, so, you know what I mean? So I couldn't put that day there. I put it on Wednesday instead. And then Friday we did high volume to kind of flush them out. You know what I mean? But like, and then just, just maybe too much volume, too much jumping. And they got sore. Knee. I remember one time, Joel, I did a lactate test in the morning. You know what I mean? On the bike. And at practice, the coach. He was, he was so mad. He walked upstairs. And thought, what the <laughs> hell did you just do to these guys? I said, I didn't lift them. I just biked them for 30 seconds. He's like, they suck. I was like, oh man, like it was, I mean, you know, some of the things, just, just the mistakes. I think volume has been my big one. Cause I try to push your limits. So I'm, I'm going to be honest with you. you know what I mean, and especially when you're young, there's not enough miles on you to realize what's going on. You know what I mean? 
and you gave it yeah but but some guys were great because they're just beast others mm-hmm. you know what i mean yeah that, that'll get you and it's crazy the interaction with coaches because you get a team leader i've had team leaders that said guys literally in meetings we will never be sore we will never tell the coaches anything and you're like wow this is a stud right and he had a great team and then other guys were like well you know i, I don't feel perfect and i'm like jeez oh, what are we gonna do right i mean well it's it's just the dynamics of coaching right yeah one of my favorites was for me it's i've always been a nitpicker on the volumes but i think where i have gotten in trouble is like being a little too creative with new exercises sometimes and i remember yeah i had a my water a water polo team doing like a suitcase deadlift with a barbell off of like blocks so basically like a two-thirds range deadlift and i i I got a like a text basically saying like so and so many guys backs were sore jacked up from that and i just think about i'm like my test is like oh i can do this just fine and but like you got guys with tight hips and it just isn't you know water-based athlete just not wasn't the best idea there well yeah the water-based athlete right and then just just actually the other thing was uh too with that is just changing exercise i'm like you did less volume the week before but we changed an exercise you hadn't done since summer and now you're sore uh like that was the one thing that i realized so so what i did in my programming joel's i would uh and usually i had a download week and then i changed the exercise right so then i started changing the exercises in the download week so the volume was low that matched the following week so they didn't get sore you know what i mean starting with the higher volume program versus basically almost the same program on the light week but just lower volume with the new exercise because i I found when i implemented a new exercise then that's when they got sore you know that they hadn't done in a while yeah for sure i've 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 been there with that one i i remember someone did something on a hamstring it was in season track in season i changed whatever their hamstring exercise was in season some sort of form of rdl and someone's hamstring got like majorly sore from the eccentric stress and the you know, coach was like, was it really a good idea to change that, Leo, and see, to, you know, to try that one in season? That was like my first year. Uh, so yeah. that was, uh, yeah, that wasn't the great idea back then, but it just has, it's helped me throughout time. I, I really like what you said too about, because I, I knew it was coming. Like when we overtrain a team, the, it's always going to be one of two things. Either the coach doesn't care. They're like, yeah, these guys are soft. They need to get better anyways. And it's like almost there you have like the safe, the huge safety net, right? Or it's like, oh, my guys can't be sore at all. You you have, it's kind of goes yeah. one of both ways. And so either you can do no wrong or you're walking on eggshells a little bit if you're trying to, you know, much new stuff. And, and what I found is with coaches dealing with people like that, I, I, if I communicate, say, hey, coach, there's a time where I'm going to change up or do some things that they can be sore. Is there a time that training it's okay to be affected and sometimes they'd come up with a window for me you know what i mean so if that communication was was key um there's others like oh, i don't want them ever to be sore and you're like okay we're not going to be able to train we're going to be under trained by the end of the season i get you know it's just something you got to live with right and then other teams be like all right we'll, we'll taper them trust me in this taper they'll perform well i mean one year joe i had i think we were around 90 percent hit life lifetime prs on one of my teams. really in swimming actually and you're going that's pretty hard mm-hmm. Like we we just match up and, and normally sixties good or fifty if you can hit a lifetime PR. You know what I mean? Now, Joel, I don't know if they were completely overtrained the whole season and just with the taper. We're not talking the season taper. We're talking lifetime. So I was like, I mean that 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 was just pure luck. I think I don't know. I think the weather broke too in Minneapolis that year, so like the sun came out and we got more like so everybody was like ramping. Everything was going well. You know what I mean? So there was a lot. There's always a lot of variables in there. Like right now, we're two days ago we were thirty below at my house. Not windshield, Joel. 30 below. 
every athlete looked like I had a lift plan. We just did recovery because it's 27 below, right? Like, nobody's motivated to do anything. No, seriously. So we just did recovery. I think it worked out well. I mean, I, didn't, I had nothing to measure it on, but like, that's the thing. That's the art of this whole deal. That's the art of coaching, making those adjustments. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. I, and then, by the way, that is funny. Like minus twenty-seven. I did spend two years at Wisconsin Lacrosse, and so I had two. There were two days that were minus thirty. I will remember one of them very, very well because I had to work outside that day. <laughs> but that was and we're uh, talking straight temperature, right? Yeah, uh, I think it was windchill. Are you? Is there, are you okay. straight there? Uh, temperature. It was straight. Yeah, it's not too often, right? But I think Minneapolis is about seventeen or eighteen. But out in the country where I lived, it was twenty-seven. Wow, it's crazy. And then windchill is about forty. 50 you know that's beautiful but yeah it hurts right it hurts it's so cold mm-hmm. yeah. nobody's motivated no yeah no doubt um so it was so you mentioned swimming and actually swimming is kind of one of those things that as i was reading over some of your new information on the way you're doing complex training i had noticed this uh, myself a couple of years ago with the swim coaches that i've been working with is just the way that they complex the training together is uh, to me i learned so much from it because i think i'm so used to okay, let's, let's pair the squats and the box jump, squats and box jump, yeah. or, or even you get into French contrast and that's awesome. And that was the game changer and it's helped me, but to go even layers beyond that swimming helped me a lot. And then I saw what you've been doing, the way you're uh, layering those skills together. And I just, I loved it. I, I was really cool to see that. So tell me a little bit about yep. how you've moved through, you know, complex training, potentiation clusters, French contrast, and then what you're working on now. Right. And you can use all those with this still. Right. And I have, I've actually, and I, I don't know if you can post in the show notes, I'll give you an example of what, I, how I did it, but, um, and then obviously the YouTube part of this, where I explained some of this, and this will also be in triphasic too, but Joel, so I was, I'll tell you the story. I was uh, training my son over COVID. He's 15 and we had nothing else to do. I had a gym set up at the house, fortunately. And we had nothing else to do but train. So we trained three times a day, six days a week. Okay. And some Bulgarian stuff, right? But it was perfect. He'd go up, do some schoolwork, come down, do 10. We'd do some German volume training too with that. So we did 10 sets of 10 some days at the end of the week, right? On an exercise, hex deadlift or even even squats. And then, uh, so anyway, long story short, and he wanted to do it. But one day after squatting, just four, I think we did four sets or five. Yeah, five. What transpired, Joel, was I videoed him after his warm up sprinting, and then I videoed him after the squat again. And I noticed him undulating up and down, which, which tells me that he's, he's more of a quad dominant athlete, which I call a primary neurological compensation pattern for hip, hip flexion, right? So his, his quad had turned on, and when he, well, now hip, hip uh, extension. When he was accelerating, I saw him just undulating more and I caught it on video and I was like, what just caused that? Was it the squats? So I'm going, there's a neurological pattern being created from his warm up, And the only thing we did was five sets of squats in a row. And I'm going, this is a problem. And then we did five sets of like reverse hyper and glued hams. And I had him run again and Joel, it disappeared. So I was like, is the squat exercise bad? So I tried it on some other quad dominant exercises, right? And the same thing happened. So then I began to realize, and then I could fix it with the glued ham. And now at that point, you know, I know RPR and and be activated. And you're like, I could have fixed it anyway. But I was like, I got to actually figure out this whole concept without 
inflicting this or uh, any changes, I should say. So, Joel, what I did was if it goes away from the, you know, if it goes away from undulating when he runs after the squat, I'm like, if it goes away after I do the reverse hyper and glute ham, well, well, let's just pair these together. So basically what I did was I paired the squat with a glute ham hyper. And then I had him do sets of those. I, I'd cycle it, squat, glute ham, hyper. And then I had him do sets of those. And I kept filming him and he never, it never caused a compensation pattern. And with that being said, I think that concept right there. So basically I trained an agonistic muscle with the antagonistic muscle, right? So Joel, what, what happened was it didn't cause a compensation pattern. And what I call the, it kept the global neurological sequence of the nervous system in the right pattern the whole time. And it optimized it. So the, the global, that sequence that I'm talking about was optimized by pairing the exercises together. And we got these methods of like, let's go four sets of squats or, and, and Joel, I actually you do four sets of squats and maybe some hurdle hops, right? Well, this is all more quad dominant driven. You do five sets of those two exercise. Then what happens is I got the neurological compensation pattern. So then what happens is when I paired, let's say a back squat, a hurdle hop, and then I did the reverse hyper and I did actually, you'll like these primetime Dion runs. You know what I'm talking about? Mm -hmm. So I paired the bent knee primetime Dion's with the right after the uh, glute ham hypers. So there's four exercises right there. And I do one set of each, Joel. And what would transpire is he never got that pattern, that negative effect. Now, look, Joel, I've been training all these years, and I just caught this for the first time over COVID. And we've gotten these methods of doing four sets from powerlifting, from weightlifting, and even bodybuilding, Joel. So I'm going, this isn't optimal for athletes is what I began to realize. So four sets in a row is actually causing, it's actually screwing up what I call the global neurological sequencing of the right movement. And with that being said, Joel, I was like, and now you need to do it in powerlifting. Right. If you're powerlifting, you need to get ingrained, grease the groove, right? You need to do that whole deal. Weightlifting, you have no other options except doing the pattern. Bodybuilding, Joel, you need that four sets in a row to cause a metabolic effect for hypertrophy. Does that make sense? Obviously, I think it makes sense to everybody. So I, basically, people say, well, is it a circuit then? I'm like, yes, it's basically some level of a circuit now. But you're pairing exercises together to like not cause a compensation pattern by doing exercises for four in a row, you know, and people say, well, is it the squat? No, it's not the squat. It's, it's other things. It's the other exercises. So I'll be honest with you. So what happened was I, I videoed, I had about 40 athletes come back right when we got COVID Joel. And when they came back, I mean, the compensation patterns they had because they were with other people, I should say, and I call them personal, maybe, maybe I call them, I'll call them personal terrorist. I didn't start that right but i saw a lot of compensation patterns fortunately and then i didn't fix them i didn't fix them with rpr i i went 12 weeks when they all came back without doing rpr or anything to, to help that global neurological sequence joel and what i did was i videoed them and, and would see all these bad patterns when they ran i did four sets of exercises and watched how how it changed them for the worst and then we started doing the uh, performance cycling is what i call it basically these circuits that i'm speaking of and after about two to three weeks, Joel, those compensation patterns went away. Okay. 
and they all started running much more smoothly, right? It's crazy. And I think running is, is one of the greatest assessments of, of any athlete, right? So on the survival mechanism, if you think about it, number one things protect the head, right? Or your brain. So that's why, you know, and your eyes are part of your brain. You, you blink your eyes, you move your head. The, the second would be protect the spine. But then in that whole process, like we're wired to run. So running is the most reflective thing we do, in my opinion, the most complicated. And it's like, if you can use running to assess athletes, you know, and I think Chris does a great job from foot position as takeoff on the ground to knowing what muscle fibers aren't working on the glute meat. I mean, it's pretty, pretty amazing stuff. You're sitting here going, this is what I saw and as it was an improvement without any intervention of let's say RPR or anything like that. And so yes, Joel, I've been doing this wrong. I realize and this is a pill you have to swallow. I've been doing this wrong in my opinion for 21 years. I just found a more optimal way. I, I should say it was less optimal because because what I did and everybody gets results, right? You'd hope if they measure stuff. I don't know. Some people don't. My athletes got better and I measure and you're like, okay, this is working really really well and anybody that had a conversation pattern the sequencing seemed to, to work the global neurological sequence kind of came back into play and the i call global neurological sequence it's just the order and sequence your body moves right joe people think hey some people train the muscles some people are training neurological or the brain right they, they say but but like a cadaver has a brain and muscles and it can't move you know what i mean so it really comes down to the neurological system. The nervous system initiates thought and movement. And people talk about compensation patterns within that, Joel. That compensation patterns are, are needed for survival. Because let's say a, a bear hit your quad, part of your quad, when he swung at you and then clawed you and you took off running. Well, you better figure out a way to work around that quad to run, right? So this is a good thing. These compensation patterns are actually for survival. They're not made for sports. Because sports, you want those things to be gone and, and optimized correctly. And, you know, the crazy thing, I, I don't want to say people have been doing it wrong, but I think the perspective that you have to look at this is that with the global neurological sequencing, the nervous system is, is key in this whole deal. And this training concept will help optimize the sequencing of the muscle firing so that you can get the highest level of performance. Does that make sense with this, with this performance cycling method I speak of? Yeah. I like how you mentioned like, like, look, we all, I think this is a young industry and we're still, you know, we're going to optimize every year. We're going to get a little more optimal than the year before. And let's hope you know, when both the, you and I are talking about the things that we've done in the past that maybe there's two, there's athletes who are always going to survive. There's athletes who are always going to thrive almost, even if we throw some stuff that's not like, I think about, we've probably over squatted athletes in the past and there's athletes who still figure it out, but there's going to be a lot of athletes who that didn't help out very much. And I like that especially what you said with sprinting, like it's got to come back to sprinting in the sense that, and speed is so by and large the thing that, I mean, there's a lot of athletic skills out there. You can run, you know, run, jump, throw, whatever. But for some reason, and I think it's because speed is almost like the pinnacle, you know, core, everything has to be working really, really well. It's like, an indicator, yeah. Joel. It's your barometer, yeah. right? In my opinion. Would you agree? Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah. If you got faster, you're clearly going in the right direction. The human yes. organism is more fat, it's more powerful and it's more functional. And hopefully that stuff can transfer over to other things you're doing too. Yeah. To me, speed is the key indicator. That's my primary. I mean, Joel, I test speed every two weeks on a 20 yard dash with my athletes. Right. And if they're getting better now, 
there's times where they get slower. I, I remember I, I created a 10, 20 yard dash tool. It's on my YouTube page too. Maybe you can smack the link or we can get mm-hmm. to it for, for the listeners. But Joel, I remember he comes to me after six weeks and we were basically using the 10, 20 yard dash to indicate what training protocol you use. He's like, that's ah, not working. And, and I run a high volume program. I'm like, what do you mean it's not working? He's like, well, everyone's gotten slower in the last six weeks. I'm like, I, I know. I said, this, this is what happens because it's, and so I said, why don't you just put the times and graph them out? So then after six weeks, we did a download week and then we did some speed and then week eight and then week 10, everyone had gotten faster, faster than they've ever been. I said, graph it out. And he graphed it out. And I'm like, what's that graph? And he goes, super conversation. I said, <laughs> yes, there you go. Right. Like I said, so now I, you can actually use that tool to get faster every week, but you got to nail the, the volume, right? You have to, if you want to get a little bit better every week, you got to get the right amount of value. But to me in the off season, you need to super compensate, right? You need to get into that. I wouldn't say dark side, but you're getting not as fast at certain times, but you need to know when you're, when that time to come to, to take advantage of that compensation and then peak on it and get your best results. Right. So that's the art. Of, that's another art of coaching. I know a lot of people say, well, you, you know, you shouldn't do that. You know, you want to train the right amount every time, but I'm like, if you train the right amount every time, my opinion is Joel, you don't, you don't create adaptations in systems that you're going to need later to get improved. Right. So everyone says, Oh, just, just do the right amount. So then you get a little bit better. Well, but at some point there's going to be a rate limiter somewhere and you're going to have to address that rate limiter at the highest level. Right. And that's why I like block method because I can focus on that rate rate limiter. And when, when you focus for two weeks on the rate limiter and you, you address that problem, then you're able to raise the ceiling of everything. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I actually have a, question i had a question about to dig into the squatting but before i get to that actually i would like to ask you this because it's something that i think about is block versus serial i know you've back um, you know in your experience working with track and field probably this is probably a while ago but i know you've uh, worked with coaches who are into the bonder chuck method which is very it's like the opposite of block training it's just pick and so i'm curious what what led you to a more of a formal block overload where you're really intentionally creating overloads and then i, I want to f- have a few follow-ups on yeah. that one well so for example if you find a quality that you think somebody needs i'm like you could okay if if you do let's say you know a, a program where okay we're gonna do that quality every friday for eight weeks okay that's great but i want that quality fixed in two weeks so i'll do let's say it's eccentrics i'll do eccentrics every day for two weeks right and i guarantee you I will get greater results of the eccentrics in, at the end of those two weeks or the week after than you will if you did it one time a week over eight weeks, right? Because, and we're talking about qualities and, and, and the stigma with blocks, like, oh, you're only training eccentric. Well, that's my focus. But look, I've seen changes in the vascular system and changes in the heart, right? The cardiac system. I've seen changes in speed when you're training. So it's not like one quality. And I'm talking about major qualities and performance. It's not like one qual training, one quality, you lose all the other one. You know what I mean? You don't use, you, you, you focus on eccentrics. You're not losing strength. You know what I'm saying? And I'll tell you what it's, it's so, and in my opinion, I set up everything in a training parameter so that one thing led to another, which led to another, which optimized speed at the highest level. And I do more would you call it sequence training or, or, you know, just the mixed training methods, whatever you conjugate, whatever you want to call it. Right. 
I do more of that maybe in season just to keep certain qualities. But the block method was the one that I truly saw the greatest results and it leaks over into other qualities. So let's say you're doing isometrics. Well, isometrics makes people stronger than they've ever seen. Right. And it, and it was able to get rid of some compensation patterns, which then set them up to move better. Like triphasic is just breaking down just all dynamic movement and it's not sports specific. But it sets you up to be sports specific later is what it does, right? And that's the thing about block is I'm able to identify problems because I do so much testing. And then I can figure out, okay, this is what they need. Now I found ways to hack triphasic. So I, I only do eccentrics if they give me a reading that they need eccentric. You know what I mean? And I'll be honest with you, Joel, it's on my 5, 10, 20 tool. So I'll, I'll take a 5, 10, 20 yard dash. And then I compare it to a pro agility. And that'll tell me it's on my website if they need eccentrics. And I, Joel, 20 years ago, I mean, I hate to say it, but like, I, I couldn't, I couldn't figure out if somebody needed eccentric training on a force plate. And I don't, I think those people that make that statement are false because I was able to coach a kid through to change the eccentric loads that I just saw. You know what I mean? So I, I have a hard time with one movement. Now I like running to indicate that I need eccentric training, you know, and when I analyze a 10, 20 yard dash and I, I take the five and 10 and I look at it, I can identify a kid that needs isometric strength. And I do that. So we go to do triphasic. He needs strength. He can, his five's fast, but his five slow, and his ten to twenty is faster on the ratios that I found. I know he needs uh, he needs isometric strength. You know what I mean? But if it's if the five's fast compared to the ten and the twenty times, guess what? He doesn't need isometric strength because isometric strength correlates to starting strength, and starting strength's good. So yeah, it's pretty interesting. So yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. So. I have a lot of things I need to ask you. So I want to yeah, get into yeah, the squat. I want to yeah. get into the squat portion. And I also want to get into this 10 20 thing. So I'm going to I'm going to ask you about the squats now and then let's segue into some of the finer details of the 5 10 20. And I love how you take it all back to sprinting. I mean, it's just how many coaches just hang their hat, oh, so you set a squat PR. Got strong. You know, you got stronger. You like and, and but it's like, well, did you get faster? You know, and 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 that's and, <laughs> and that's, your sports running, <laughs> like uh, yes, it's exactly. so crazy, right? But yeah, but even if you're a, I don't know, even if you're like a volleyball player, you're not really going to sprint much over ten meters. I don't think getting fat, like Boost Nextator has talked about, he got athletes to jump higher, volleyball players, by exposing them to max velocity. I don't. Dan Fichter said something to this tune too. As long if you're improving your maximal velocity ability, like that, even goes further than training jump ability because if you improve your max velocity you're probably going to jump higher you can jump higher but probably not necessarily improve your max velocity you might but you know it doesn't work the other way around as much i completely agree joel like max velocity is an indicator of potential in the nervous system let's be honest right like and if that potential is high because your max velocity is just flying then guess what you got now so and let's say you hit your lifetime best in max velocity, but you haven't trained vertical jump. I would say that you might match your vertical jump. And if you trained it for two more weeks, you get, you get some good results. Yes. If you can get your light, right? Like, so it's just an indicator, but it, it all goes back. And there's a lot to vertical jump. And as, as you know, obviously, you know, there's a lot to vertical jump. They're just that measurement from foot problems to lack of mobility or, or whatever they, whatever the cause is. But, uh, that 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 running again, Joel is is the greatest single indicator of what's going on. Yeah, that that cord that high speed coordination rises all ships for sure. And I, I agree. Yeah, maybe that vert didn't go up as soon as you pop that skill in and train it for a few weeks after you've improved your system, it's gonna your velocity. Yeah, you're uh, right. So okay, so the squat. So I think this is interesting because I mean, 
the French contrast that you've popularized, and then you and Chris's book that went out maybe six years ago, the football triphasic with all the you know the French contrast stuff in there. That's yeah. been a big. That's changed a lot for me. I really that book was a big. You know, if I had to list uh, list like the top five you yeah. know, training paradigms that changed how I was doing things, that one was a big one. And so that. But what's interesting is what you were just talking about was a little bit of a steer off of that initial system because like if you did a triphasing set triphasic set, it would be like like all maybe vertical based. Like it's a squat, it's a hurdle hop, it's a speed sure. squat, and it's a assisted, all vertical. And now where this is changing is now you're throwing in the the horizontal work, the posterior chain work in the same, like I guess super set. And I, to me, that's where I see this being the biggest like turn off of what we typically would do because we like to match up these stimuli, right? We're like, right. Oh, I'm I'm on squat patterning, or I'm on. I know another thing I've done as I like I do my other variation. I don't know if you guys have done this. At least this is what I I had like I don't know, I guess I called it horizontal, but it wasn't really because your lifts were still vertical. But I would do like a clean pull or a, a hex deadlift, and then a bound, and then like a a fast snatch or a kettlebell swing, and then a you know another type of running type movement or something sure, like yeah. that so that was my horizontal version but it wasn't quite it was not like doing a glute ham. well to bring up your point joel I, I yes i do that and for example let's say so right now i'll, I'll just give you a, a quick example of, of one series of six exercises or it might be seven actually i, I put eight in my performance cycle so i did uh, a single leg safety split squat then i do my hurdle hop which then goes into as soon as I'm done with my hurdle hop, Joel, I do a 20 yard sprint, right? Then I went over to the glute ham and I paired the glute ham. I did the glute ham and then they get off and then they do a flying primetime Dion with a bent knee because the glute ham, you're bending your mm-hmm. knee. So it's, a, I'm adding the, the hamstring in there too. And if people don't know what, what else they call prime times, uh, Dion Sander. Yeah. Straight leg, straight leg bounds. I think a lot of people yeah. are familiar with that term too. Yeah. Straight leg bounding. So, so then that's the fifth exercise is the prime times, right? And then I might go do another vertical jump to simulate some of the like uh, accelerated bands from the ceiling, right? And then I'll go back to a reverse hyper after the the vertical jump at the bands, and it might be a split squat jump. And then I do the reverse hyper, and then I finish with some straight leg prime times. So your 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 knees not bent when you slightly bent; they're completely straight. And I, it's kind of what you're talking about right there. I just added eight exercises. There's no rush. They just sequence through. Now, Joel, what I'll do this summer, I only do two to three sets when I do that in, in season right now. This summer, what I'll do is I'll do, I call it a, I think I mentioned it in triphasic two, a, a biometric parametric, where I'll basically do a vertical jump before. And then we do that cycle and I retest vertical jump. And the vertical jump is actually that vertical jump before they start the next set is going to tell me how much fatigue level we've hit, you know? So like an auto-regulatory, hands on the hips, vertical jump and so forth. Yeah. So with that cycling, now, should I give away a, a little secret? If you want to, one? yeah, go yeah. ahead. Well, I'll include it in the triphasic, but Joe, I, when I was fortunate that I had some really advanced Kessler force plates that were like, it would tell forces in, in like six degrees, right? So the six degree force plate. So it would, it would point an arrow. And when I was doing force plate testing years ago, 20 years ago, when I, when I started triphasic, what I saw was quad dominant athletes, when they did their vertical jumps, they jumped forward, right? And I was like, why are these certain athletes jumping forward? And then I was like, these are, these are quad dominant athletes, obviously. So when I say this, 
So when you walk into my weight room, instead of starting at squats, I have some of my athletes that are quad dominant and I know who are quad dominant anyway, start Joel at the glute ham hyper, because I even saw some of those quad dominant athletes do their squats and hurdle hops. And, and actually when they ran, they would undulate. So I would start my first set with my quad dominant athletes at the rear posterior chain exercise and then cycle through everything, which is actually better, Joel, for my weight room functioning. You know what I mean? So everyone mm-hmm. starts. Oh, yeah, a yeah, couple yeah, people. big groups and stuff. So, yeah. So, so my point to you is, so how could I, here's a way that you can hack it. So, Joel, you get everybody on the line and you have them hands on the hips, close their eyes because the eyes will adjust. You actually could use a, a quiet room because the vestibular system will help them adjust their flight when they jump. But the athletes, that when they jump, have them jump three times with their eyes closed and land. And your quad dominant athletes will have drifted forward. So if you've got 10 kids, you take five that drifted forward the, forward the most and you send them over to the uh, glued ham to start that whole cycle. The other five go to the squats. And it's, it's, uh, it's pretty interesting. You know what I mean? But I, I caught that many years ago. I've been waiting for like force plate experts to tell me this, but I haven't heard any of them, you know, and I, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I didn't catch the forward where the engineering students that were here working with me, because I couldn't run these force plates. I mean, there was yeah. no way. I, yeah, I, I, they're complicated. Well, back then, especially now they got uh, yeah. nice, nice software systems. But I mean, I got 100 pages of, of uh, Excel files. I'm like, what, <laughs> what do you want me to do with these? Like, I don't know. <laughs> you know what I mean? Of, of all these numbers. And they were like, okay, well, these kids seem to be jumping forward. And I'm like, all right, I looked at their names. I was like, well, what the heck? Like, these are all my quad dominant, obviously, I mean, monster quads, you know, those type of athletes. So that's just, that's a secret that that's a way for people to hack where to start them in that cycle. I love that. I like that. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense to me with the vertical and the quad dominant. I always feel like it's people who couldn't time up their posterior chain, and their glutes very well to hit that crack in the vertical vector, especially if they don't have a target to jump to. So I, I, as you said, I was like, yeah, that's right. I, right. I, cause honestly, I didn't even think about it until you mentioned it there. But I'm like, yes, I've seen that a bunch of times. I, I've just never actually sat and been like, yes, this is quad and posterior chain down. It makes sense. Yeah. So the beauty of that is, is just, well, theoretically, to make it work, you, you need to probably do it. Not, like, no, the radio can't be on because people will actually pick up sounds coming off the wall to help them stabilize mm. and adjust their position so that they go more vertical. But you close their eyes, hands on hips jump up and you'll two, three, four jumps. You'll see them just start drifting forward. And those are your more quad dominant athletes and send over. Yeah. But, but you are right though. Sometimes it can also be uh, the sequencing, right. Of the muscle. So uh, regardless, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't hurt anybody. That's not quad dominant to start somewhere else. In that whole Right. So you may just get, if you got 20 kids and there's only four that are quad dominant, then you might just pick another seven to start somewhere else. You know what I mean? Just, just so that whole cycling, that I'm talking about runs through your weight room really easy. And I'll be honest with you, Joel, it's, it's honestly, it's better to do it that way for, with less equipment. So coaches with a small weight room actually might find they may be able to run more athletes through with that performance cycling. And you're doing a better job for the athletes in my opinion. Right. Um, look, and, and coaches be like, Oh, Cal's told me I got it wrong again. I'm like, look, people, Cal got it wrong so many times I've got, and, and I didn't break an egg there. Right because I, I did four sets of an exercise and we move on, but like, I'm going, I was just less optimal, Joel. It's like, and live with it. But now I found it. I hope to share it with people and they move on and, and help, you know, make it better. So yeah, the overarching like theme I'm getting is it's almost, it's a big step away from 
I don't know, like it's almost like before, like you would define old school strength and conditioning as as pattern centric. We're going to work squat pattern. We're going to work hinge yeah. pattern. And yours is like we're going to work sprint pattern. And whatever sprint pattern you need, like your quad dominant, let's start with glute ham in this cycle. And then, and it's you're always throwing the thing in there that's going to keep the sprint prat- pattern at the premium. And one thing I like that Chris Corfus has said in the past, he's like, athletes who squat a lot tend to sprint like they squat. And so, it's exactly what you're saying. You do those four sets, and even though you have hurdle hops in there, it's still a squat pattern. If you did the squat before it, you might set the hurdle hop up, honestly, to be maybe even less elastic than it could be, too, or whatever. I mean, there's different ways to hurdle hop, but I can totally see that. So I love how right. it's very, it's a sprint-centric way of assigning the work. It, it, you're exactly right versus a pattern-centric right? Like it, you, that's, that's well put. You, you, I think you explained it for the listeners really well, instead of just working on patterns. Cause, but, but again, Joel, that's what powerlifting and weightlifting people need to do is pattern work, but not my athletes, mm-hmm. right? Not my athletes. Now, no, look, Joel is, is sissy squats a worse pattern than let's say a power clean. Of course, of course they are. I like power clean better. I don't do a lot of power cleans, but my point is if you're going to do a power clean, I would still fall with a posterior chain like for that athlete, right, to to get that because really the power clean is almost a squat. But you are using your posterior chain, but just start pairing it. And I'm, I'm not saying all the ones that I do, and I'll release them in triphasic too, like things that I do, are going to be optimal for that athlete. Because the only way you can optimize it, if we could literally figure out, well, you just watch them run. If they run better because you put it through a sequence, then that's that one. Now, it may screw up another person with the with the exercises, right? The exercises you choose that works for 80% of your kids might not be optimal for 20% of the others. So there's an there's the next route. I I, I don't I don't know if I can go down that route I uh for another couple of years, but a way to what's optimal for that athlete that day. Have you put all the right exercises? Because that actually is a whole nother, you know, it's it's a nightmare to think about. But uh, I, as I told you, I'm I'm looking into EEGs and we're analyzing like binaural tones, which frequency is the best and what what um, what zone. And we're also going to look at maybe at some point exercises which seem to be better than others for your brain. I think EEG is the way to go. Um, we we train with glasses. We will put those on. So. We have that machine here now, um, and I'm I'm pretty excited about the direction we're going with that. And well, you can have me back on and see what I find. And look, when I find stuff, it's my testing. It's not like you know, if if I get eighty percent results, I'll tell you it works, right? Like I mean, I'm going to tell you it works. I, I'm good with eighty percent. I'm you know, I've told people that uh, racing the core when they bench press made a hundred percent of my athletes move the bar slower, right? <laughs> I'll tell you that people don't like it. They get upset, especially the people that wrote the books on core bracing and they hate me, but whatever. I'm okay with it. Right. It's, it's, uh, it's much more effective when you, you, uh, fire glutes. Obviously we know that, but you know, ultimately this whole thing is just trying to get it optimal, optimal for our athletes. That's what we hope, you know, with the, the sprinting. So just assessment, um, you mentioned like, like maybe individual differences or, cause I think that uh, there's going to be some athletes who probably squat and run better following that squat than others. Maybe one athlete, it makes them a total neurological wreck. Maybe another athlete does it and you know, they, it doesn't, I mean, do you, and you mentioned quad versus posterior chain dominant. So, I mean, I was thinking, so you have the 20 to assess between, but you also have like bound, you could use bounding as an assessment, like straight leg bounding, bent leg bounding, 
Like, how do you, how are you looking at those as assessment tools and, and as they go along? So do you want to cover the 1020 tool really? Oh yeah, let's do it. Yeah. Yeah. So my 1020 tool, Joel, was I had all these numbers for years. I had probably 18, 19 years of tens and 20 yard dashes. When I first started training, I had the back squat. So within a week window, I had a 10, 20 yard dash at pro agility, at vertical jump, vertical jump with pause, bench, squat, power clean. And I had all these numbers and I started going, I started looking at the 10 and the 20 to, cause again, I, again, I love running cause running is the greatest indicator of what the body needs or is, has gone through. I was like, I found a 10 yard split and, you know, you throw body weight and some other parameters in there. I was able to find a 10 yard split that could tell me whether they, these kids needed strength or whether they needed speed or power. Right. So I, and I was fortunate. I was able to look through my athletes. Like let's say I had a kid come in and he back squatted 320 and then at, at 185 pounds. And then he was only 10 pounds heavier and he back squatted 500 four years later. And I'd look at his 10 and 20 yard dash and you could see the changes when he was weaker, when he was stronger and when he was powerful, when his best vertical jump was. So, so I took all that stuff and kind of put it together and was able to create a tool, Joel, off a 10, 20 yard dash that told me what their weakest link was in training. So it's an indicator of what they need for the next two to four weeks in training. So I run a 10, 20 yard dash and my athletes walk in and they have basically five let's let's say three programs burnout. out so they got strength power or speed they run their 10 20 and they're told you need power this week so here's the beauty of this i have two kids that run the same 20 yard dash time but they're given two completely different programs because of the 10 yard split and the kids go we ran the same time but we got different programs i'm like yeah this is because it's for you and their eyes light up like this is what mm-hmm. you need they're like and then they kind of get bought in. You know what I mean? Like it's it's a it's almost a buy-in tool. And and then Joel, here's the scary part. This is what kept me up for years. That's why I drank myself to sleep most night. No, I'm teasing. Um, Joel, I you know you take the whole summer, and and I didn't I didn't follow a periodization model. I let this tool. So every two weeks I test, and they get a new program for the next two weeks, and then I retest, and I let that tool indicate where they went with their training. And then Joel, once you go back and look at the training, what happened over the summer, do you know how many people followed the traditional periodization model in the college setting or advanced athletes? And we're even talking high school to, to junior high or uh, high school juniors and seniors in the advanced setting when advanced athlete, because they got two years training age, Joel, the traditional periodization model that people follow only 20% of the athletes actually followed that model. Hmm. So I only got it right for 20, 20% of the time, Joel, for 20 years. I only got it right 20% of the time for 20 years. That's pretty sad, isn't it? But Joel, here's the deal. If I would have flipped the periodization model, guess what? I would have got it right with more advanced athletes 30% of the time because 30% of the people did a reverse periodization model. So they built, actually built speed up first. And at the end of summer, they got so fast that they, in order to get faster, they needed more speed. So they kind of reversed the periodization. And then the other 50 were just mixtures of, they would go from power to speed, back to strength, back to speed, then to power. You know what I mean? So they were a mixture. But Joel, and, and I knew periodization was flawed. I knew it. And people talked about it from Mel Sif, right? Everybody's talked about it. I just didn't have a better way. And with the 10, 20 yard dash tool, 
I think it's a better way because I've done it now for over uh, two summers. Okay. And then I've, I've, I released before I had it released publicly. I sent it to some coaches and they, they ran through it and they're like, yeah, this is exactly what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. This is exactly what this is better because people would progress faster than they ever have. And we got greater results. And it's, again, it's an indicator of what your weakest link is really quick. I had last year, I had four-year girls and fifth-year and six-year girls go to the Olympic training center camp uh, for women's ice hockey. And their whole summer, basically they did 12 weeks before that of speed. So they never benched over 50%. And of those girls, I think I had uh, in the top 10 of the fastest skaters in the country, I think I had four in the top 10 Wow! out of a hundred athletes, the fastest hundred or the best hundred hockey players. And then I had three girls that hadn't benched heavy in 12 weeks, did a three rep max and were in the top five of bench press of the best hundred hockey players in the country. So my point is, is like there, this 10, 20 tool kept telling them they needed speed and they were all strong no matter what, Joel. Yeah. And their bench came back as, Three of them were in the top five. I had one, three, and four in the top five. It's crazy, right? And again, it's just an indicator of what your weakest link is at that point. Yeah, I was going to say that's the idea that maybe like they needed speed and the, the highest coordination velocity still rose all ships by helping improve a strength measure. Yeah, I don't know if they got weaker, Joel, but they're, they're, they're strong enough, right? Yeah. That's what the thing was telling us with that 1020 tool, right? They're strong enough. I work speed and... And I think, Joel, if we'd have done a single rep max, they probably wouldn't have got their maximum potential. Mm-hmm. But we did a three to five rep, right? And they just busted out. I mean, it was crazy, you know? And they hadn't benched over 50% load. They benched between 50 and 25% load the whole summer for 12 weeks before that camp. Oh. And are like, Coach, I don't know how I'm going to do on the bench press. I said, I don't care. Mm-hmm. I said, I know the coaches. They don't care about the bench press. They just want you to score mm-hmm. a puck in the net. That's all, I, that's all they want. Yeah. And I'm going to tell them, I'm like, your bench is strong enough. So how I, I work with the women's Olympic team or the U.S. national team, which will be the Olympic team next year. And so much effort at times, Joel was put on, oh, you got to get better every time you come to camp in your bench press. And I'm like, why? Like, I, I just set a proficiency level at bench press for these girls. And if I look at the numbers and you're strong enough, stop spending time bench pressing. You're wasting energy and biological energy that you could be. Yes shooting skating and not bench pressing because if you can bench 160 170 as a female hockey athlete you're good enough your shoulders will be healthy you know what i'm saying yeah that's like that strength coach wisdom is at what point are we wasting biological resources by doing stuff we don't need to in the weight room um i just want to run run back to actually so the 1020 at least this is how i see it so you can help me clarify yeah please do yeah so if they're if the person lights up the zero to five, they're they're good at like like strength, isometric strength. Or if they're yeah. bad at it, they need to do strength. They um, need to do isometric strength. Yes. Okay, and like would that be like a split squat overcoming type thing? It or? can be whatever you want, Joel. Oh, Any gotcha. isometric exercise, awesome. but that's that's great for starting strength. Yes. Okay, and then five to ten, if they're bad at that little segment in the middle, that would be power. Then they need, and then speeds the ten to twenty, obviously. Well, the ten to twenty, yeah. So if they're better at the ten to twenty yard segment of that run if they're really good at it or if they're bad at it, they need to work more speed. So it's loads between mm-hmm. right between uh, 50 and 25%, more plyometrics in the weight room, more top end speed stuff. And then I found a, a little gap in there between strength on the 10 yard dash. And really 
to, to pick your zone, you only need the 10 and the 20. The five is a bonus, Joel, to identify if they need isometric strength. Ah. So if you're slow in the first 10, you need strength. If you're slow in the second 10, you need speed. And then I found that happy medium where they, they needed power was their weak link. You know what I'm saying? So if the, it, usually what will happen is the, if, if, let's say you're super fast and you're fast at the top, then you go back to power. And once you hit your power cycle, you'll get another reading that'll tell you, oh, now, now you actually got, you need speed. And here's the crazy thing, Joel. If you look at it, when kids hit the middle range, the power, and they got better because they got faster, some, the weak link was then strength. Some was the weak link of power or was speed. So you like, like each athlete adapted differently to power. Hmm. So it's, to me, it's so interesting that you're like, well, the next logical sequence would be speed after power, but that wasn't what the athlete needed. Hmm. That's the crazy thing. So it's all individualized. And, yeah. and that's what I think I gave coaches a tool there to do that. Um, the website's performance made simple. If you want to look at some of the formula stuff that I have. Oh, yeah, that's cool. I like that. So when you do that, that you, okay, like I, let's say me personally, I know I'm going to need isometric strength for my first five. I've, I've actually been running a lot of twenties this past year. So I, I know okay. this. Um, so I go, so do you have me on that for two weeks and like isometric strength, then test again and then reassess? Yes. Okay. Right on. And then theoretically you'll be out of that. And then you might be in the power. You might be in the speed. Mm. You know what I mean? Or if it still says you need, so Joel, the, the beauty of the five is you may need strength, but then the five tells you if you need isometric strength, Yeah. you still may need to go above 80, but you may not need isometric strength. And then what you also do is you can go over and you do a handheld pro agility and plug in the numbers. It'll tell you if you need eccentric strength. Yeah. It's, you know, so I'm, I'm, I'm the guy that invented triphasic and I'm telling you how to hack it. So you don't, you know what I mean? But it's about progressing these athletes as fast as you possibly can to the end of the summer at the end of the 12 weeks, whatever you have to train them. Yeah. I like that you're continually reassessing too. You're not just guessing oh. at the end, like, oh, I hope at the end this should all I make know. sense. Right. Like, so you're continually able to see those individual responses. I like that. So quickly, because our, our time is running out here, but I did want to ask you, well, I'll ask you this. So uh, based off this, let's say I need me, I need, I, I need isometric strength. My first five is pretty poor. And so yeah. this system like this, let's, I'm going to squat, I'm going to hurdle hop, I'm going to do glute ham, I'm going to do a straight leg raise. I, w would you assign that for me with like a really heavy loads and a isometric loads? Or is that a little different than what they might get out of this system? Well, yeah, you can, no, you can do the same exercises with isometrics. You're just going to add a pause right? Yeah. That's it. And do it isometrically focused with the running. You may add resistance, Joel, because it's greater. Mm -hmm. It's closer to, you know what I mean? Or maybe a sled push instead of a sprint. Does that make sense? Yeah. So it's, it's not. And uh, so you're going to contrast it with those things you could do with hurdle hops with a pause. And then with the flying, like let's say flying prime times, I might add a band to it. And you start from the start. If you're in this isometric phase, you're going to do the prime times, the Deion Sanders with resistance for like 10 yards. If you got a speed reading, I would change all those to really light loads, highly reactive. The prime times go to a flying. So then they go to a 10, 20 yard, 15 yard buildup. Then in the middle 10 to 12 yards, you hit a, the prime times in the flying mode because you're in the speed mode. Does that make sense? Yeah. So you can use the same exercises or you can choose other exercises. I'll be honest with you, Joel. The best single leg exercise for leg strength I've ever seen. And I, I've tested, you know, I got two 1080 synchros in my gym, right? They're 50,000 a piece to test strength. And the best strength exercise I've ever seen isometric for any leg is a single leg rack deadlift. I don't know if you've ever tried it. 
I think you have. Haven't you? Uh, Alex Natera talked about that was like his first like overcoming isometric, like a single leg rack pull max overcoming. Like that it was. Dude, a, I've been that doing that original, for original. fifteen years, and it was horrible when I invented it. It will make athletes so strong. Now, does it make them stronger in a back squat? Well, only if you're back squatting too at the same time, mm-hmm. right? That's that's the th- yeah. Well, they didn't get stronger in a back squat. Well, back squat's a skill. Yeah. Put them on a leg set and they'll be way stronger when they're done, right? Because there's not much skill in leg slide. The problem is like, well, they didn't get stronger to power clean, but there's so much skill involved in those lifts. You yes. can't assess strength with those lifts, right? I mean, it, for a first time listener that would know that, right? That's why yeah. I said that. Most of your listeners are that are educated enough, but Joel, like that, that lift is violent, horrible. <laughs> I mean, when you do it, I, I'll send you the link. Like you just get into the rack and you pull, you know what I'm talking about. It is awful because your quads are working and your hamstring and they're literally trying to tear each other apart but you get super strong and it doesn't take a whole lot yeah so yeah let's put that in the show notes i'll, I'll make a note here single yeah. leg rack but i know alex was talking about the isometric version are you talking about like actual like you're actually moving the bar a distance no. or it's just isometric it's just you just pull like you get in a split squat stance basically you set the rack up you're in a good back position you pull that oh pit, the bar into the pin oh it is the single fastest way in my opinion to build a weak leg up oh that's awesome oh yeah his was i think a bent over like like as if you're doing a high oh it's a little different but i i i, yeah. I got it um i'll, I'll, I'll send you the, the link notes. i'll send you my link of, of one of the exercises so people can put it in show notes perfect well sounds good i this is awesome man. i wish we had more time to talk but i love oh. I, I just feel like you know, sprint centric athlete need yes. block-based training love it cal I, it's, it's so good talking to you on this stuff and yeah, keep changing the game, man. I, I'm excited for next time I talk to you and, yep. and all the you know, all the things you'll come up in the time since then. So I appreciate it, man. Thank you. I'll talk to you soon, buddy. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in for another show. We'll see you guys next week.